Good morning, Lindsley Avenue. I appreciate the opportunity to spend a few moments this morning talking about a passage from the Word of God that I believe is one of the most important couple of verses in the entire New Testament, in my opinion, for those who are members of God's family. It's a set of verses that I think we really need to pay attention to, and I hope that we will pay attention more after we study them here this morning. The title of this lesson is Since All These Things, text coming from 2 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll spend a good bit of time as well over in Colossians, the third chapter. So come with me this morning as we read from God's Word. Since all these things, picking up in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved or destroyed, some passages say, some translations say. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord's coming, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved or destroyed, Peter says, starting in chapter 3, verse 11, I want you to take a moment before we continue on with this. I want you to look around you. I mean, I'm not sure where you are since we're meeting together remotely, but this auditorium in which I'm standing, the street outside, the parking lot that's empty but usually has a lot of cars in it. Think about Nashville, downtown, the Batman building. Think about Tennessee. Think about the United States of America the great ro rolling oceans, all that we see and have ever seen around us is going to be destroyed. It's all going to go away. Nothing that you see now, looking out wherever you're sitting, and nothing you ever have seen is going to remain. It's all going away. It's all going away. So Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved or destroyed, since everything we see, everything around us is going to be destroyed, look at his next statement. This is from the NIV. I don't use that very often, but the way it phrases this is very, very clear. Since all these things are about to be destroyed, Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be? Since everything here is going to be destroyed, what kind of people should we be in our day-to-day -day lives? That is the question, it seems to me, from 2 Peter. Since all these things are about to be destroyed, what kind of people should we be? We face two choices in life, only two choices. We can either live for ourselves or we can live for God. One of those two is going to be the kind of person that we live our lives, the kind of person that we are in this world. So since everything here is going to be dissolved, everything here is going to be destroyed, should I live for money? Should I pursue money and wealth? It's going to be destroyed. Should I pursue fame or, or fortune? Again, that is fleeting. It's going to be destroyed. Should I seek to enjoy myself with whatever pleasures I can imagine? Again, 
it's not going to last. What kind of person should I be since everything is going to be destroyed? My only choices are live for myself or live for God. Every choice I make other than a trivial choice, what color tie to put on, should I have bacon or sausage for breakfast, those are trivial choices. The choices where I'm making decisions about the kind of person I'm going to be are either going to be choices where I'm living for myself or choices where I'm living for God. That's it. All of our actions, all of our choices are going to be on one of those two paths. So we need to know what kind of behavior is living for myself and what kind of behavior is living for God. If the question to me is, what kind of person should I be, and my only options are someone who lives for myself or someone who lives for God, what kind of behaviors are living for myself and what kind of behaviors are living for God? And for that, I want us to look at Colossians chapter 3. We'll spend the majority of the rest of the morning looking at Colossians chapter 3. So turn over there with me and let's look. Beginning in verse 1, we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, Colossians 3, chapter 1. If I have been raised with Christ, if I am a member of God's family, if I have been born again, if I am supposed to be living for God, then there are some changes that we have to make in our lives. There are some things we have to put off and some things we have to put on. The illustration Paul is going to use here is, of, you can think of it as changing your clothes, taking off old rags, dirty clothes, and putting on fresh new clothes, taking off behaviors that are part of living the way I used to live, and putting on behaviors that I'm supposed to be doing, supposed to be having associated with me as a member of God's family. I have to decide. Am I going to continue to live for myself or live for God? If I have been raised with Christ, the choice should already be made. So let's take a look at this. Beginning in verse 5, skip down just a couple of verses. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 9. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The King James says, mortify, therefore. It really is, kill it off, put it to death. Give these things the old yeller treatment, we remember back. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And look at the first four things Paul lists. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. There's a common theme in these first four behaviors. I'm convinced that if you went through the New Testament somehow and were to try to categorize behaviors, categorize sins into higher level categories of a type of sin, I believe it's going to be true if you were to do that, that the New Testament and the apostles condemn immorality far more often than anything else. The reason for that is that in the first century, immorality was part of who you were as a person. Part of the pagan worship rituals that occurred was immorality at the pagan temples. Well, we don't do that in the 21st century, but immorality has not disappeared. Far from it. The first four things that Paul condemns are behaviors associated with immorality that are a prob were a problem then, and they're certainly a problem today. 
So when Paul condemns, put to death, therefore, these immoral behaviors associated with sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, what are we going to do? Well, if you're single, the only real possible answer is don't. When Paul says put these things to death, if you're a single person, the answer from God, the answer from Paul is don't take part in these behaviors. Don't do them. And that's really the, the answer. That is the answer. If you are a single person, the answer is don't do these things. If you're married, I'm going to make an assumption. The assumption is, is that you love your spouse and you want your spouse to go to heaven. That really should be an easy assumption. After all, if you're married, you are in fact in love with the other person. You pledged yourself to the other person. Men are supposed to be willing to die for their wife. If you love your spouse and want your spouse to go to heaven, then I have this question. How does this, you can see that picture, this young couple, they're out in the snow if you can't tell. I mean, look at that. These people are going to be frozen to death in probably under a minute, and they have no idea because they're so in love, they feel all warm and toasty inside, even as frostbite might actually be setting in on them. How does that, I mean, that's usually how love starts off, young and in love, kissing on each other. I mean, look at these two, right? How does that, the way things start off, how does that turn into this? Now, I'm pretty certain, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty certain my wife and I saw this couple sitting over here at Cracker Barrel near Trousdale on I-65. There was an older couple, they sat down to eat, they said a few words to the server, and then they didn't say a word to each other the entire rest of the time. So how does this, oh, how cute, right, snuggling up together and all that, how does that turn into this? Instead of turning into that when we're older. I want you to look at that. You have the, the quiet love here of the man kissing his wife's hand on the left side. And then on the right side, you have this old man, that's what he is, kissing this woman on the cheek, and she's just cackling and laughing and loving it up. Which would you rather be when you're older? Uh, the answer is, I think, pretty easy. This is how we would want to be that's how God wants married people to be. Again, that is a problem. There's also another problem. How does this, right? This is the picture we saw. How does this, sometimes, unfortunately, not too long after, turn into that? That's not good either. You see that picture and that body language, we know there is trouble. We know there is trouble. So what's one of the contributing causes of how these paths in married life occur. Well, I'm going to take a short diversion. In fact, it's one slide. A short diversion over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a chapter we often try to stay away from because we don't want to often talk about these things out loud, but I'm going to do it anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're married, don't. But if you're, if you're uh, not married, don't. If you're single, don't. Sorry, I got that backwards. If you're single, don't. But if you're married, do. Do. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Paul says, Do not deprive one another, 
The language Paul uses there is of defrauding someone else. Having something that belongs to the other person, and when that something is desired or wanted, you say, I don't have what you're wanting, when in fact you do. It's a lie. It's a lie. You are depriving someone else. We would never think of depriving a child of what the child needs. There's a difference sometimes in need and expressed rants and, and you know, tantrums. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, and Paul says, do not deprive one another. Why? If someone is deprived, look what Paul says. Satan, if someone is deprived, the problem is Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan looks for the weak spot, and if someone is feeling deprived, and I, we are talking about what you think we're talking about here, if someone is feeling deprived, Satan has an easy way in. So Paul says, don't do that. Do not, that is a command, do not deprive one another so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what's the basic message here? Spouse, I hope you notice I'm using gender uh, independent pronouns here. I'm not using any pronouns at all as best I can. Spouse, figure out what your spouse is hungry for. Okay, that's the language I want you to think about. What's my spouse hungry for? Whatever that is, it may be the same thing for both of you. It may be different. I don't care. What's my spouse hungry for? And then decide, do not let your spouse leave the house hungry. Certainly not routinely. Do not deprive your spouse of whatever your spouse is hungry for. doesn't matter whether that's intimacy, whether that is time, attention. I don't care. If I love my spouse, I need to figure out what my spouse needs or wants, whichever it is, and I should not deprive my spouse of what I have to offer that my spouse needs or wants. Period. That's what Paul means right here. If you are married, do. Be close together with whatever your spouse needs or wants to avoid the temptation that Satan can bring in that will often drive a marriage off the rails. That's it. That was the couple of minutes here for 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, put to death, therefore, we're back in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, immorality, the four things we just talked about. If you're single, make sure it's put to death. And then he continues, and covetousness, which is a, a form of lust, that's what covetousness really is, which is idolatry, because you're wanting something else instead of wanting the things of God. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Now notice, on account of these immoral behaviors and covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, in these activities, you once walked when you were living in them. When someone did these things sinfully, they were living for self. When I'm looking to make me, myself, and I happy, when I'm looking to do the behaviors me, myself, and I are interested in, I'm living for myself. And I'm not supposed to do that if I've been raised with Christ. God's anger is coming at people who are living for themselves. If you are living for God, put these things away and in a sinful setting. Let some of them continue. These things we were talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, some of them need to continue as we just discussed. But if you're living for God, you've got to put these things to death. You've got to kill them off. 
Continuing in verse 8, he gives of other behaviors that need to be put off. The clothes need to be taken off containing these old behaviors. Look what he says. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Put away. Again, the idea is of throwing off old clothes. Anger and wrath, the two Greek words used here. One is for a quick anger. Think about how fast straw will catch fire. Doesn't take much and it's out of control. Do not have any kind of an anger that's quick fire where it just pours out of you at a moment's notice. Wrath is an anger, the word here is talking about an anger that lasts a long time. It simmers, it doesn't go away. Sometimes the individual that will fly off the handle immediately understands what they did and they're sorry for it. They, try, they pull it back in. Someone who has wrath continues to be angry. Don't do either, Paul says. Put them all away. Quick anger, long-lasting anger, malice. This is a, a more of a viciousness that can get in you, that whatever you can do to cause harm to somebody else, cause trouble to somebody else, that's what I'm going to focus on. It can generate so many other bad behaviors. Malice. I really don't like you, and I'm going to do whatever I can do to make sure bad things happen to you. That's malice. Slander. The word for slander is actually the word for blaspheme. You can blaspheme, speak evil, untrue things about God or your neighbor. Same word. Do not slander one another. Do not blaspheme or slander God either. Obscene talk, that's pretty plain. It means what you think it means. Don't let obscene talk be something that comes out of our mouths. Do not lie. Again, very, very plain. How can we be living for God and be saying things that are untrue? And when you take these last three things and turn them into positives rather than negatives, Christian speech needs to be kind, pure, and true. So if my speech is not kind, pure, and true then I'm not living the way God would have me live. So if these are the things we're supposed to put off, Paul then, just a couple of verses later, tells us the things we are to put on in place of these behaviors. He says, starting in verse 12, put on then. Put off these old rags and put on new clothes. And all of these actions we're talking about reflect interpersonal interactions between each of us between us and our neighbors. Look at some of them. Put on then compassionate hearts. Have a heart that cares about other people. You know, the, the one that had no compassion you can think of would have been probably Scrooge at the start of A Christmas Carol. It just wasn't moved by the suffering of his fellow man or fellow woman. Cannot be us. We have to have a heart of compassion. We have to have kindness. We have to show humility. We have to have meekness, a sense of purpose that reflects our lives being under control. We have to have patience. We are told to bear with one another and forgive one another. Why? Remember, if I want God to forgive me, I need to forgive my neighbor. If I don't forgive my neighbor, God is not going to be in a very forgiving mood when I stand before him. Bear with one another and forgive one another. You know, 
we all have probably somebody in our life that's a little tougher to deal with. We might have to bear with that person. Here's the way I've come up with to think about that. I can bear with somebody because I have no idea who views me as someone that's difficult to deal with. Surely no one, but there may very well be someone that views me as someone who is difficult to deal with, difficult to bear with. I would want them to show compassion to me, to bear with me. I don't want to cause trouble for someone or stress, but if I do, I want them to treat me that way. I need to treat anyone that I might even dream of thinking about that I view as someone who is tough to deal with. Bear with one another and forgive one another. And then Paul says, above all these, put on love. Because that's really what we're talking about. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put off behaviors that are living for myself. Put on behaviors where we show love toward one another. Put off and then put on. Why? Because if you look at the, past, the part of the passage we have not did not read Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Why? Because I have put off my old self with its practices and have put on the new self. It goes back to the start of Colossians 3. Since I am one of God's children, since I am a member of God's family, I'm supposed to have put to death the old me. And I'm supposed to have the new me now living differently. I put off the old self and I put on the new. I'm not living for my old self. I'm supposed to be living for God. It means two things. We heard how this section talking about put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. Christianity is so simple in so many ways. I need to focus on two things. I need to love God. That means I'm going to want to get to know God. I'm going to want to please God. I'm going to want to do what God wants me to do. Love God and love my neighbor. That's it. And by the way, I put in parentheses, please remember, your spouse is by far your closest neighbor. Please don't forget about that. Let me ask, what does the course of your life look like recently? If you were to get a piece of paper out, and on that piece of paper you had a pencil, and over time you were going to move the pencil up and down on the paper, and we would move it up toward the top of the paper when you made a decision, when you did something that you would view as having been living for God. You made a choice that God would have wanted you to make. The line goes up. When you chose an action or made a decision that was living for yourself, something sinful or something certainly God would not have wanted you to do, the line goes down. So over time... What does the line of your life look like? Is it going to have some jiggles, some ups and downs? Sure, of course it will. Over time, what does the direction of your life look like? Is it a line generally going up toward God like that? Take a look at that line for just a moment. If that line represents the life of an individual... Does that person have moments, days where they lived for themselves, where they made choices God would not have wanted, where they chose actions that were sinful? Of course it does. Look at it. There are times where it goes up. There are times where it goes down. But look, over time, what do you notice about that line? Over time, 
that person makes more and more decisions that are living for God. That person is, in fact, on their way home to live with God. That's what the idea, really, of showing grace in our lives looks like. It's not a, I'm saved, I'm condemned at a moment's notice based on one choice. It's the general course of my life. In that circumstance, by that line, that person is living for God and truly sorry and repents, turns away from things when they realize what they've done and they get back on track. That person is headed home to live with God. Is that what my life looks like? Is that what you would draw on the paper? Or is it more down toward self, like that line? Look at the second graph right there. You know, does that person make choices where they were living for God? Yes, they do. There are times when that line goes up. But over time, what does that person choose more and more often? Compare the two people. The graph on the left is of someone who's going home to live with God. The graph on the right is going down. It's going more and more on average away from God. That is someone who is choosing far too often to live for themselves. So what does your line look like? You know, I don't know what your life looks like yesterday, last week, last month, this year. I don't know. God does. God knows what my life looks like. He knows what my life looks like. I need to know what my life looks like. I need to stop and ask myself, what does my life look like? Is it a life showing that I'm living for myself? Or is it a life showing that I'm living more for God? I know what it needs to be. What is it? What is it? Last slide. Go back to the start of Colossians 3, back up at verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, do what? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who in fact is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. But look, if you have been raised... And that happens at baptism. That happens when we are buried in water, we die to ourselves, and we are raised, as Paul says in Romans 6, to walk in newness of life. Once that happens, once I am raised up out of that watery grave, I need to live for God. And if that is me, if I am a member of God's family, since all these things are about to be destroyed, what kind of person should I be? The answer is, one who lives for God. If you have not been living for God, if you have not been moving upward, if the graph of your life is not what it would look like if you really wanted it to be, if it's not what you want it to be, change. You've got the opportunity right now, you've got the opportunity today to turn that life around, to change the direction of your graph to start living the way God would want you to and the way you know you should if you are a member of God's family, if you are already a member of God's family. If you're not a member of God's family, none of this directly applies to you because you're still living for yourself. You're living your life in that area that's destined for wrath from God. You need to die to yourself. You need to be raised to walk in newness of life. You need to start on that path 
that heads home to God. You need to learn to die and to live again. Who will you live for? You need to decide today. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to read a couple of verses out of Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. In verse 19 of Luke 22, we read, And he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in my memory. Jesus' body was offered on the cross. Jesus died so that we would have the opportunity to live. We gather together around the Lord's table each first day of the week, just as they did in the first century, to partake of a little piece of bread to remind us of Jesus' body just as the disciples did in the first century, to examine our lives and ask ourselves, are we living for God, are we focused on the way our lives need to be for that great, great sacrifice Jesus made for me. So as we partake of this bread, let's focus on the gift that God gave through the life of his son offered up for us. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are so thankful for the gift of life. We are thankful for the gift of your son, who died on the cross to save us from the death that was coming from our own actions, who died on the cross to give us the opportunity to live, to truly live with you. And as we partake of this bread, please help us to remember that body that hung on the cross that was given for us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. In the very next verse in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, we read, Likewise he, Jesus, also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Jesus died on that cross and his blood was shed. We are told without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. The only hope we have of forgiveness from our own choices is by the blood of Jesus that washes those sins away from us. The sacrifice he made gives you and me the opportunity to go home and live with God. And so when we partake of this fruit of the vine, we are thinking back to the body that Jesus, uh, the body of Jesus that was hanging on the cross and the blood that he shed, giving up his life that we might have life. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we also want to thank you so much for the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that we are remembering as we partake of this fruit of the vine. 
that we would be thankful for the life He gave for us, the suffering that He went through for us, and the resurrection that shows the way toward eternal life. Help us, Father, to think about that sacrifice that He made, not just today, but through the week, that we would always choose to live for You. Thank You again for the blood that Jesus shed. It is through His name we pray. Amen. Of course, we're not collecting a contribution in a uh, manner here this morning, but the act of giving is a very important thing that we need to continue to support the work of the church, to support helping people, to support spreading the gospel. And so in whatever way you are continuing to support the work of Lindsley Avenue, it's, it's so incredibly important. In Acts chapter 20, Paul records the words that Jesus said where he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So let's give thanks for the blessings that we have and the opportunity that we have to share those with the church in order to help others and proclaim the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are truly blessed. We are blessed not only with the gift of life, but with so many material possessions we would ask you to help us to be good stewards of those possessions, to focus not on the possessions themselves, but the good that might come from their use, from the help that it can be to others, and from the way that we can use those monies and possessions to spread the good news of your Son all around the world and even in our communities. Thank you for blessing us. Through your Son we pray. Amen.